Hey everybody, what's up? Sagi here. And before you listen to this episode, I just wanted to let you know that the Hacking UI podcast, while we still have a lot of downloads for our podcast, is a legacy podcast, meaning David and I are not recording any more sessions for the specific podcast. So what you can do right now is, first of all, listen to this episode, and second, know that you can find David on thoughtleaders.io, that's his new business, or you can check out my new podcast, which is called The Creativepreneur Show. And you can just go to creativepreneurmagazine.com or creativepreneur.show. So those are the two domains that you would be able to find my show, my new blog, my new community. And I hope uh, to see you there. Also, be sure to follow David Tintner and Sagi Schreiber on Instagram. We're both on Instagram. I'm also on YouTube. So you can check out the YouTube channel if you want to check out YouTube. Enough with my talking. Oh, my God. So anyways, I hope you guys, though, connect with me and David on the different platforms after this episode. All right. Make sure to do so because we have so much new content for you. And enjoy, guys. Enjoy this episode. You bake those insights into your actual system so that that the next time somebody reaches for that solution, they have an understanding of like, this is why things are the way they are. Hello, hackers. Thanks a lot for joining us for another episode of the Hacking UI podcast, where we hack our way through product design, development, and creative entrepreneurship. I'm David Tintner. And I'm Sagish Robert. This will be the sixth episode of the third season of the Hacking UI podcast that we call Scaling a Career. In this season, we have 10 amazing guests for you that are leaders and influencers from a variety of different backgrounds. You'll be listening to our interviews with Samuel Ulick, founder of UserOnboard.com, Quincy Larson, founder of Free Code Camp and top writer on Medium, Maria Judice, former VP experience at Autodesk. And we will release these episodes every Thursday. So make sure to stay tuned and subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. For this season, we have two amazing sponsors for you with incredibly useful products. InVision and FreshBooks. So I bet you all know InVision. So today I want to talk to you about designbetter.co. The education team over at InVision created an amazing source of quality learning material for product designers. They interviewed dozens of leading designers and companies like Google, Airbnb, Netflix, Facebook, Slack, and more. And basically they did that in order to discover the design practices that they use in order to help everyone, their audience, which is us, transform our design process and push our organizations to the limits. So don't forget to hit designbetter.co. It's an amazing resource. They have four books that they publish. They have an amazing podcast of their own. Be sure to subscribe to it. And they have workshops for designers. So you can check those out as well. FreshBooks is the perfect accounting software for freelance designers and developers or creative entrepreneurs with a small business. FreshBooks is built from the ground up to work for people like us. Let's say non-accountants. They have some really powerful features like integration with Stripe, expense tracking, and a customer support team that actually picks up the phone and works with you to find the perfect solution. Actually, my favorite part about FreshBooks is the super smart notifications they send, which show you the highest priority task you can do right now in order to improve your business. Again, if you're an experienced accountant and you're looking for the all-powerful analytical monster of a tool, okay, this is not it. But if you're like us and you're just looking to get some understanding of your business and keep track of things without wasting hours of your time, then this is exactly what you need. If you want to see what it's all about, FreshBooks gives you a 30-day free trial and doesn't even require a credit card to log in. Okay, so on to our episode today. Our guest today is a super talented designer and blogger. He's the founder of the Atomic Design System, which I guess most of you know is a popular methodology for building design systems. We talk about achieving breakthrough in your career, managing time, building design systems, and more. Ladies and gents, it's our pleasure to present to you Brad Frost. Let's get hacking. 
Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Hacking UI podcast. And today we have with us on the show, Brett Frost. Brett, what's up? Hi, how's it going? Thanks so much for having me. Hey, Brett, thanks for joining thanks us. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, pleasure. <laughs> Just for all of you listening, I, we were like so back and forth and like all of us are so busy. So to get this podcast together, all of us at the same time talking, that was like, <laughs> that took about a month. <laughs> More than that, I think I was going through yeah. our, our email thread. I think it was maybe two or maybe even three months. So, so yeah, <laughs> glad we were able to make it work. Yeah, persistence is key. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I've been like following you, Brad, for a long time, reading your stuff, watching your talks, really admiring your way of thinking and the contribution that you brought into the design community. So I am honored to have you on our show. And also, I have tons of stuff I would love to basically dive into, because I think like everything you're talking about right now, or stuff that you already talked about a year or two years ago, even are now at the kind of like spotlight of the design scene. So you also wrote a book about it. So we can talk about those kind of stuff yeah so how about we start with just a bit of background about you how you came to be a designer and what kind of projects you're working on right now yeah yeah well first of all thank you for the kind words and yeah i appreciate that Sure. So I've been a, a web designer for going on a decade now, which is crazy to think about. <laughs> and sort of my trajectory, I sort of came up through the abridged version without getting too far into the details is sort of through the agency world. So doing a lot of sort of client work, you know, at sort of smaller agencies, e-commerce agencies for like fashion companies, and then sort of went to a bigger agency called RGA in New York City, where I worked with sort of bigger clients and stuff like that. And then I moved back to my home city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the States and started my own shop, essentially. So it's sort of now a shop of two, myself and my brother. Cool. Yeah, so we are still doing a lot of client work and stuff, but then in addition to all of that, I do a lot of consulting with different teams and organizations of all shapes and sizes and do a lot of workshops and speaking and writing and all sorts of stuff. So um, it's a little bit all over the place. And if you were to break down a pie chart of sort of what I'm working on at any given time, it's... <laughs> I have have no like semblance of a schedule or anything like that it's just sort of each week is a new adventure which uh you know pros and cons to everything i guess so i mean i also right now i do client work and i do like workshops and i write you know i blog i podcast i do stuff like that so yeah. i'm very interested in hearing how you basically arranged all of these things together in a way that you say i don't have a schedule but i mean you know for me specifically right now i'm working a couple days a week with my client so are you putting in workshops and stuff like that like into your schedule when you have to commit to clients as well? <laughs> I don't have a good answer to that. <laughs> so I'll say that uh, that since my brother came on board, that's been really, really helpful to basically have somebody who's able to sort of be dedicated and holding down the fort as far as actually sort of moving forward on, on client work while I'm sort of on airplanes and sort of crisscrossing around and sort of, you know, working with clients and stuff. So, so that's been really helpful. That's one of those things where it just sort of, it ended up happening and I didn't realize how badly I think I, I needed that to happen in order to maintain my sanity because otherwise I just wouldn't <laughs> be able to sort of produce a lot of production ready sort of 
client sites and stuff, you know, it's, uh, Uh as much as I love deep diving into, you know, IE bugs and stuff like that, it's, uh, you know, time is limited. So it's good to have somebody else that can sort of help me sort of share that burden or whatever. So, but generally speaking, as far as sort of arranging it, it all just sort of happens organically. There's no real design to how I go about sort of doing things. It's just sort of like whatever sort of lands in my inbox and whatever, whoever's inviting me to sort of come out and talk and whoever's asking for work and stuff. And I recognize that's a a great place to be having this sort of fluid sort of thing going on. So yeah, yeah, (laughs) extremely happy about that, sort of recognizing that for what it is. But I do think that, you know, all of those sort of extracurricular activities, you know, the podcast and the blogging and the, all that stuff that does feed that. And whenever people ask me, I get quite a few people who are either freelancers or, or do things on their own. And they say, you know, how do I land clients or how do I land work? And, you know, and one of the pieces of advice that I, I normally give is, you know, well, you know, are you sort of putting yourself out there? Are you sort of, you know, participating in one community or another? Are you, uh, you know, sort of sharing your thoughts? Are you sharing your ideas and stuff? And of course, that gets into the whole, I don't have time or, you know, all that stuff. So it's, it's interesting. It's a hard thing to manage, I think, for anyone. But I think, that stuff, while it looks like you're just sort of giving things away for free and you're sort of, you know, doing a bunch of stuff that isn't directly related to what you do, like that all 100% feeds back into how you get good client work. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think like, you know, David and I probably both agree it's connected. And the way we see it is connected. We also have our side project accelerator where we talk about these kind of things as well. And a lot of the stuff we get, like people are really talking about having no time to do these kind of things when they're hard at work. So do you have any like tips for people who want to, who know it's important, but you know, really can't find the time? How do you find the time to write so much and, you know, do all these things? Yeah, I don't have good answers. And I can't say that I'm good at that either. One thing that I did sort of find is sort of trying to time box things, especially around sort of blog posts and stuff where I'm like, okay, if I want to write a blog post, I'm going to write this and bash this thing out in an hour. And if it goes more than an hour, then it's not going to get published. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and of course, that sort of helps sort of curtail the the temptation to sort of write what ultimately is like a book chapter or something. So it's just like, it's trying to sort of like find ways to go, all right, like what are ways that I could sort of force myself to do this and in such a way that it fits with my workflow, it becomes sort of part of my sort of like regular thing. And even if it's code related work, or if it's a uh, design related work, like visual design related work, it's like, all right, what's the thing that I could do to just like share this on dribble real quick? Or what's the thing I could do to put this on Behance? Or what's the thing that I could just sort of put a gist on GitHub? Or what's the thing that I can open an issue with the open source software that I'm using? You know, so it's like, what are those like just little sort of micro actions, I guess, that helps get you in the habit of sort of sharing things and participating more in a way that isn't like, okay, I need this to be an official part of what I do now. Yeah, of course. I think a lot of it comes down to though the fact that you obviously see value in doing these things too. You know, things that are not like so clearly, I do this work, I receive this amount of money or whatever. Obviously, it sounds like you see the value in promoting yourself or doing things that are more long-term where the ROI is not so clear-cut at the beginning. 
a lot of people that we work with or we talk to don't have as clear of like an understanding of that. And it's hard for people who haven't necessarily seen the returns on this type of work yet, believe that it will happen to them. So I want to ask you, how long were you kind of putting yourself out there, promoting yourself before you saw your first returns on that work? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think that point is spot on, David. A lot of people are skeptical of the idea of just one sharing in general. I like to think, and I've given talks on the subject of this sort of whole notion of being sort of open by default in our industry more than any other industry, I think, on the planet shares more and understands the value in sort of putting things out there and and sort of doing this sort of quote unquote free work, you know, like, what do you mean you're like, you know, you put your kids to bed. And then you're sort of, you know, working on some bug or whatever on some project with people that you've never met before, have any intention of met, and and you're giving the software away for free. Like it is, it's a foreign concept to a lot of people. And and I do think that a lot of people are still, even within our industry, are still sort of trying to get their head around that. But I will say that it is incredible that we have this open and sharing of a community, even just other areas, you know, academia and other stuff, healthcare. It's like there's so much stuff around, you know, patents or or sort of like these sort of turf wars and stuff that prevent people from sharing. Mm -hmm. And, And while there certainly is that here, there's also it's less of an impediment, I guess, to actually sort of getting out there and sharing things. So yeah, as far as my own sort of personal journey in that world, basically, you know, I ended up getting a job you know, sort of cut my teeth doing my first few years, just sort of getting my head around the the sort of mechanics of designing and building websites. So pretty head down there. But then whenever I went to RGA, I got a job as a mobile web developer where this is sort of a little bit after the time the iPhone came out, but still the web world wasn't really thinking too much about mobile at all. It was sort of like, here's this sort of weird thing that's sitting over there. And of course, you know, their mobile experiences, mobile web experiences, existed sort of before the iPhone, but that did sort of change things. So whenever I got into that, I was looking around for people who were talking about it and there weren't all that many people. I mean, there's a a great handful of people, a few great books that were written. And so as a result, as I sort of was slogging through this stuff in my daily workflow and my daily work, I would sort of, you know, start blogging my thoughts, what problems that I was running into, things that I was seeing seeing, you know, solutions I was sort of coming up with and just sort of participating in that way. And that, you know, really sort of snowballed into meeting a bunch of these people who I'd learned so much from and ultimately getting a chance to sort of, you know, work with them and have conversations with them and collaborate with them and stuff like that. So just even even that was rewarding. And through all of that, I guess I'll say that through those connections, whenever I left my job and went out on my own, it was to step in to a project working with Josh Clark, who is one of those people who I still collaborate very closely with today. But through those connections of just sort of sharing stuff and talking through stuff and and sort of meeting these people, you know, led to, you know, paying client work and stuff in a way that I was able to sort of like leave my job. This is just sort of, it's cropped up time and time and time again, you know, so I'm actually, I'm doing a redesign of my website right now. So I'm actually sort of (laughs) starting to wrangle all of these different side projects and sort of these things that I've done off to the side of my real work. And the amount of projects are many and the people that I'm collaborating with are many. And each one of those things has, sure, its own sort of intrinsic value. But again, just to be able to sort of collaborate with other people 
And that sort of helps elevate your own skills and stuff like that. You know, I'm a musician, so I think about that through the lens of music where it's, you know, you could be a good musician and perform stuff on your own, but any number of musicians will tell you, you know, those people that you're playing with, you know, that you sort of feed off of each other and you learn a lot from and, and that sort of elevates the whole experience for everyone. I very much feel that way with sort of this stuff as well. But yeah, and then I'll say the last thing is like, as far as like real, like tangible benefits is, you know, working for years, like putting out different resource sites, different sort of just sharing things and written over like 600 blog posts as I sort of gone through and started talking about this stuff. And then so whenever it came to write a book in a book that I was intending on selling, it was like very much feels cashing my chips in where it's like, all right, I've been like sort of contributing, you know, open source software and resource sites, other side projects and stuff for a number of years. And then it's like, hey, like I'm finally making something that, you know, you can pay for. And and I think that that's sort of helped with the success of, of the book. Was a book always kind of a goal of yours to write? Or was that something that just came out of all the previous work? Yeah, it just the latter. (laughs) (laughs) It just sort of like came as a natural extension of stuff. But yeah, so the book's called Atomic Design. And basically, it sort of started as open source software. And then I started talking about it in sort of conference talks, and then started working with other companies and stuff. So it was just a, a very interesting evolution. And so there was a lot of meat on those bones, I guess. I felt that putting it into a book format, it seemed like a really nice way to sort of put a bow around all these different concepts and stuff. It's just funny, like even, you know, three years ago, you know, I would never sort of say like, I'm going to write a book. Like that's never a thing. (laughs) And that's, (laughs) this is a theme already in our conversation. It's just sort of like feeling around in the dark a little bit where it's just like, you know, and I think that that's okay, so long as you're doing things that you feel are valuable and things that you're particularly passionate about. It's okay to like not have some like master five-year business plan with everything spelled out and you're just sort of ticking boxes off. It's like, you know, go where your gut tells you and do the things that you feel would be helpful and fruitful and fulfilling for your own sort of, you know, scratching your own niches, I guess is how they say it. Do you have any sort of, because I definitely agree with you and it sounds like an enjoyable way to uh, develop your career also to do the things that are challenging for you the things you're interested in and go like you said with what your gut tells you but do you have any sort of framework that you use or maybe guidelines that you have for kind of taking these decisions like bigger decisions things that you really you know you kind of have hit a fork and if you go this way it means one thing and if you go this way it means something else yeah it's a great question and i think is something that we all struggle with and my basic framework is like do more of the stuff you like do less of the stuff you don't like. And sometimes, though, you sort of hit these crossroads where it's like, okay, I recognize that there's something that might not be immediately enjoyable to me, something that I feel like I'm going to have to slog through in order to sort of break through and get to the other side. And that becomes a decision of like, okay, if I were to slog through this and get to the other side, like, will I be in a better position? Like, you know, will that turn into a passion? Like, so that stuff is really hard to sort of navigate without obviously going through it and sort of coming out the other end. Like, you can't see the outcome necessarily. But just a good example is like, oh, well, React is really popular right now, right? It seems to Mm -hmm. not be going away in any capacity. And, you know, I've been doing front-end work for, a decade and I have my head around sort of we'll say like sort of similar technologies but I haven't really had a chance to sort of like deep dive into this 
it does get a little more in the weeds you know just sort of i have a decision to make is like do i want to go into like sort of hardcore javascript development mode or not and some of these things is like well if i do that one am i going to enjoy it like two like what am i trying to to get out of this and three like is that the best use of my time and i'd say that you know looking at something like react where it's like, okay, it sort of is reaching sort of a critical mass where like in order for me to do my job properly, I should probably have my head around this. So even if it's going to probably be a slog to sort of get through and get a better understanding of that stuff, it's something that I'm like, okay, this seems like a direction forward that a lot of people are sort of, you know, latching on to. But I would say that in a broader sense, and I talk to a lot of people, people who have started their careers as a developer and end up as like a UX researcher or people on the other end of the spectrum and like start off as like this sort of, you know, UX researcher that's now like a backend developer or whatever. And it's like, there's a lot of ways to sort of navigate those waters. But again, it really is, I think, that gut feeling of it's like, what am I naturally attracted to? Like, what are the things that I am excited about versus the things that it's like, man, this this feels brutal and stuff. And it's fine. <laughs> My wife runs a business too, and she's a jewelry designer. And <laughs> nice. I can't remember where she read this, but she's just like, any job, doesn't matter what it is, any job has shit sandwiches that you just have no choice but to just suck it up and eat it. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's like, you know, and anyone that tells you otherwise is lying. You know, not everything is just like a walk in the park or, you know, skipping through the tulips or whatever. So it's like everybody <laughs> has stuff that is like less than enjoyable, but is part of the stuff that hopefully aligns with your passions. So generally speaking, and that's why I do think that this like sort of gut feeling of following that instinct is very important because if your gut's saying like I don't want to become this sort of like hardcore JavaScript person but like that seems to be where the industry is going but now I have to do this but I don't find any real enjoyment out of it and you might be good at it you might be proficient at it you might be very skilled but if your passion isn't there then you're gonna end up miserable so there's plenty of room I think to operate in any particular direction you want to go so people that that like the sort of more architectural sort of side of things. It's like, wow, there's plenty of room in the pool for that. Or people that just like want to put headphones on and like do amazing sort of visual design work. Ah, there's plenty of room for that. For people that, you know, don't want any of those things and want to sort of float, there's plenty of room for that. So all that's to say that gut instinct that what do I like? What do I want to do more of? What are the things that I wake up excited thinking about sinking my teeth into that's the stuff that you want to listen to i think very very closely all right so let's take a short break to talk about our sponsors envision and freshbooks so i bet you all know envision and love envision but today i want to talk to you about designbetter.co the education team over at envision created this amazing resource of quality learning material for product designers they interviewed dozens of leading designers at companies like google airbnb netflix facebook slack and more basically to discover their design practices in order to help us learn from that and implement that into our organization so first of all they have a podcast that you really need to subscribe to it's a great podcast and also they have four books they've put together so you better head over to designbetter.co and check those out also you can check out one of their kind workshops for designers 
FreshBooks is the perfect accounting software for freelance designers and developers or creative entrepreneurs with a small business. FreshBooks is built from the ground up to work for people like us, let's say non-accountants. They have some really powerful features like integration with Stripe, expense tracking, and a customer support team that actually picks up the phone and works with you to find the perfect solution. Actually, my favorite part about FreshBooks is the super smart notifications they send, which show you the highest priority task you can do right now in order to improve your business. Again, if you're an experienced accountant and you're looking for the all-powerful analytical monster of a tool, okay, this is not it. But if you're like us and you're just looking to get some understanding of your business and keep track of things without wasting hours of your time, then this is exactly what you need. If you want to see what it's all about, FreshBooks gives you a 30-day free trial and doesn't even require a credit card to log in. So what are the, those things for you? The things that, you know, not the stuff you have to slog through, but the things that you're saying right now, I'm waking up and this is like what I cannot wait to do. Yeah. Broadly speaking, I feel like I've landed on a couple broad things as far as like how I navigate life is I like making things and I like helping people. So long as I'm able to make things in some capacity, I'll be happy. And so long as I'm able to sort of help people, especially helping other people make things, that'll make me happy. And so what that does is frees me up to just go, cool, am I, am I making things? Am I helping other people make things? Then like chances are I'm, I'm doing okay. And that's going to change. You know, of course you talk to me five, 10 years from now or whatever, like I'm going to be doing wildly different things, but chances are I'm still going to have those sort of same principles in place. But yeah, so like sort of specific to like, I woke up this morning you know, I'm in the process of redesigning my website, which is a crusty sort of three-year-old sort of thing. And it's been on WordPress, well, for almost a decade or whatever. And it's <laughs> been sort of an evolution, but I've never like fully taken the time to do things in a more of a systematic sort of modular way. And so this is all the stuff that I've been living through with my client work and the things that I'm on stage and in, at companies sort of talking about. And so I'm finally like, okay, it's time. It's like a bit of like spring cleaning. It's about like sort of taking this stuff, tearing it apart, putting it together in a way that is going to, I hope really sort of stand the test of time so that I'd be able to sort of iterate a lot more quickly and stuff like that. So that's personally what I'm really excited about is finally getting around to sort of this neglected website of mine and, and sort of sinking my teeth into that. Cool. And how are you building it like right now? What's your plan with it? Yeah. It's a great question. And again, like as I sort of started this work again, for the longest time, I was just working right within WordPress. As I was sort of getting into all of this and trying to redesign it, I'm like, man, this feels not right. This feels gross. This feels like I'm getting tripped up or sort of it doesn't seem to be going as smoothly as I needed to. And I finally sort of took a step back and I was like, why is that? And then I realized, oh, <laughs> I'm now used to working, I help work on a tool called Pattern Lab, which mm -hmm. is basically a design and development sort of environment that's like devoid of any backend solution. So it's not about WordPress, it's not about Drupal, it's not about React, it's not about Angular. It's just like, I'm going to design and build the UI, like the front end of like the UI. So that's how I've been working for the past four and a half years on all my client work. And then I realized that, oh, I don't actually have this set up for my <laughs> own site. And so once I sort of ripped everything out of WordPress and put it into Pattern Lab, then I was able to be creative. Then I was able to sort of move a lot more quickly. And again, more thoughtfully develop patterns and sort of put them aside and reuse them elsewhere and stuff like that. 
that. And that was like a breath of fresh air and stuff. And then same thing goes with like all my like CSS architecture and stuff. I'm like, oh, this is <laughs> myself three years ago. It's like I'd be, you know, firing them or something if they, if they were working <laughs> for me. So that's been the whole process has just been like going through and cleaning all this up. And from a visual standpoint and stuff like that, you know, nothing like too crazy different or something. I'm trying to do something that's a little more fun. I feel like a, a big trend over the last few years has been towards like the sort of like medium style, black text, white background, sort of single column. It's still single column, but like... Minimal. Yeah, minimal. And, you know, me personally, I like to have something that's fun, maybe a little goofy, but like not so goofy where it's like cartoons or anything like that. But... um. <laughs> Just doing that stuff and playing around with different sort of things. I'm doing it all in the browser. I only use tools like Sketch and Photoshop and stuff whenever I'm working with a designer who's skilled at that stuff. And they'll sort of create designs in those tools and then I'll implement them in the browser. But for my own work, I generally just tend to jump right into the browser. When you say in the browser, what tools do you work with? I mean, just like with dev tools or inspect element sessions or like dev tool sessions or? Essentially, Pattern Lab, you know, I use Pattern Lab. I have sort of like a development environment where I write CSS using tools like SAS and whatever to sort of wrangle my CSS, but really just sort of going through and creating components through the lens of a page. So right now it's like, okay, I'm building my workshop page. And in order to build that workshop page, I need these seven components or whatever sort of stitched together in a way that they feel cohesive. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I'm not using like a whole slew of stuff to do this. I just sort of, you know, Pattern Lab is the environment that I'm sort of designing and developing in. And then once I feel good about that, then I'll sort of put it back into WordPress. And like, I have a question, which is, I guess you don't maybe feel that, but don't you feel a bit like kind of constrained by working directly with HTML and CSS and not having that freedom to kind of like play around with the layout, like move things around quickly and experiment with different kinds of layouts? Because like in Sketch, you can just like, you can multiply artboards, move stuff around, play with colors more quickly, and then like bring that into code. Don't you feel like you're constrained by the code more? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I say that a very personal no. And I talk about that. a lot like in conferences and in companies and stuff like that it's use whatever tools you feel confident and you could work quickly and, and stuff like that and a lot of designers that blank canvas or that you know artboard that isn't constrained by the laws of physics really <laughs> digital physics is great and I think that for like a redesign or like a clean slate sort of design those tools are particularly valuable in those cases wherever you're trying to establish an art direction whenever you're trying to establish a vibe and stuff like that and again I work with people who are very very skilled at that and I enjoy taking that vision and sort of translating that into the working environment that said you know I've been a front-end developer for 10 years so you know I a hundred percent don't feel constrained by HTML CSS and JavaScript because I think that I know how to wield them and I'd say more importantly especially with the new technologies that have come out CSS grid in particular there's all sorts of new things just by changing a couple characters in CSS that lead to these wildly different results you know manifested in the browser 
So that's just as creative, I'd say, maybe if not more. But I'd also say that there is this dose of sort of reality to playing around in that way, right? And I say this working with different designers, especially in the first part of my career, first sort of half of my career, people making a bunch of really beautiful things in static tools like Photoshop and Sketch, and then getting sign off on those and all of that, and then, you know, shoveling them over to me. And I'm like, this is 100% impossible to build. <laughs> and I'm not just being a curmudgeon or I'm not just being lazy. Like this literally is impossible. I've essentially gotten the, the equivalent of like magazine layouts, you know, but this is before a lot of the sort of CSS tools and stuff had evolved and came into play. And so, you know, it's one of those things where these people are not designing for the medium for which this thing will ultimately live. Mm -hmm. And that's a big problem. And so this definitely gets into should designers know how to code, blah, 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 all of that stuff. And the answer is no. But at the same time, you need to have an understanding of the medium for which you're designing. You know, if you're an architect and you don't have a solid understanding of physics and the materials that you're using and like what load that they can bear, you know, what does steel do and what does wood do, what do all these things. Mm -hmm. And you can't be a good architect. So for visual designers and UX designers that are sort of working in abstractions, you have to have some semblance of an understanding of how things like source order works, how things like layout works, how things like positioning work. Do you need to be able to do them yourself? No, not necessarily. I think it's helpful to at least like get your hands dirty once in a while so that you have an appreciation of those materials. But at the same time, it's very frustrating and to juxtapose like the first half of my career and the second half of my career is working with people who fundamentally don't understand that and now I have the opportunity of working with people who fundamentally do understand that and the difference is night and day yeah I would say that I have similar experiences too because I also worked with a lot of designers at the beginning that really didn't understand that and I kind of taught myself HTML and CSS like when I was just starting out so for me mm-hmm. it kind of was like always thinking about the constraints in a way. David is the front-end developer working with me all the time, so <laughs> you might think mm-hmm. otherwise, David, <laughs> that I don't know constraints. Like, I always try to think of the constraints. So that gets us, I guess, into like a topic of what you're talking about, which is atomic design and how you get everything into components. And also that's like the topic that you wrote your book about. Can you tell us a bit about atomic design for those who don't know anything about atomic design? Yeah. So basically, atomic design is a mental model for thinking about UI as a hierarchy. So basically, rather than sort of designing pages and it's like, oh, here's the homepage and here's the workshop page and here's whatever other sort of screen that you're designing for your application, you're simultaneously saying, here's this final screen, but also here's all the parts that make up that final screen. So what atomic design does is sort of breaks things down into, you know, hence the name, like it's an atomic element. So if you were to break a UI down to its atomic elements, you get things like, here's a button, here's a form field, here's a label, here's an image, here's a headline or whatever. And so those are the basic ingredients of a UI. And what atomic design does is steps through how those ingredients come together to form that final screen. And so atomic design is five sort of discrete stages. So it's atoms are those sort of raw ingredients. And then molecules, which are relatively simple components that all come together to form these sort of relatively simple chunks of UI. Good example of that is like a form field defining an input and then having like a a search button beside it, right? So a search field is like essentially just three atoms sort of stitched 
together. And now you have this nice little portable chunk of, of UI. And then from molecules, those combine further to form what I call organisms. So an organism is a collection of molecules that come together to form a, a discrete chunk of UI. So that might be like a header. You have like a logo atom, a primary navigation molecule, a search form molecule, utility nav molecule, but that header functions as its own discrete chunk of UI or that sort of grid of cards or something like that, right? It's like this mm-hmm. own portable, reusable chunk of UI. And then from there, the organisms cluster together and you put it into the context of a page layout. But at this sort of template level, what we're doing is we're defining what the content structure is of that template. So if you think of like an e-commerce site and you have like people call like a category page or a grid page or a list of all the different products, right? Often displayed in some form of grid, right? And so you have, you know, the product item, the product name, the product price, and that all like links through to the product detail page. Mm -hmm. At the template level, you're just sort of defining like, okay, you're going to have a heading for that page. You're going to have a grid of products of some things, some pagination, whatever, a header and a footer. And then at the page level, which is the final stage of atomic design, is where you sort of take that template and then pour real representative content into that template. So using that sort of category e-commerce page as an example, this is where you say, okay, here's what the women's jeans page is going to look like or here's what the men's shorts page is going to look like and here's what happens whenever the headline is 20 characters long and here's another instance where it's like 200 characters long and so this is ultimately what your end users are going to see but this is as designers and developers this is where we're sort of testing if all of those components that make up that final page really hold strong whenever you pour all sorts of different kinds of dynamic content into them. You see this all the time. And again, like historically, static tools were terrible at this. And designers would like paint these very beautiful static photos of what their page is. It's like if a user is making like the profile page for an application, it's like the avatar looks like it was clipped out of a magazine. And of course, they've like filled in every single single field, you know, they, oh, they did like these like three columns. And of course they all align just perfectly with, you know, the user generated content (laughs) that never happens ever. Like that's never happened once. (laughs) So basically thinking about this as a sort of hierarchy and thinking about dynamic content, thinking about all of that, you're able to put in place these design systems, these UI design systems that simultaneously serve the real needs of your real applications, right? But are also setting aside these components for future reuse so that if, you know, next quarter you're tasked with building a new feature, you don't have to reinvent that card pattern. You don't have to reinvent that sort of filter pattern. You don't have to reinvent whatever component you've set aside last time, you could then sort of use those, reach for those, and be able to launch features faster than ever versus going, oh, last time it took us three months to get this thing off the ground. Oh, it's going to take another three months and another three months. By putting these components aside and thinking about it in that way, you know, the first one might take three months, the second one's going to take you a month and a half. And then really, once you get going with these systems, it's incredible. You could go from like a whiteboard sketch to a working prototype in like 10 minutes. I want to ask you a a question here, because I've played around a lot with this kind of style when I'm designing CSS components. And something that I've kind of tried out different levels of is if I have a brand new project from scratch, okay? Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, 
hmm, what could be my potential, my atoms, my molecules, what kind of components will I maybe need in the future? Mm -hmm. So I've tried this strategy where from the beginning, I'm thinking all out, you know, what could it be trying to lay it out? And what I find a lot of times is that later on in these projects, the things that I thought would be a component I really need, a lot of ends up not being something I need so much of. So now what I've tried doing a little bit more is something where I'm kind of a bit more, let's say, hacking at the beginning, not thinking so deeply into hierarchy at the beginning. But then once I realize a component or I have the need for such a component, then going fully into, you know, thinking like atomic design, building out the component. Now, I'm really curious what your thoughts are on this. Are you taking a project from the beginning, you know, all the way thinking it? Or maybe it's just something that I need more experience of in order to do it better from the beginning. Or is that kind of a logical strategy to maybe, you know, hack a bit more at the beginning until you're sure you need things and it's worth the investment till later? Yeah, you're thinking about it the right way. And I think that atomic design fits in with in those sort of early days, much like we are talking about with like when Sketch and Photoshop and the rest of them and that sort of blank slate are really helpful is in those early days of a project where you're just starting to like put things together. You're like putting some ideas together, putting some thoughts together. And you don't want to sort of prematurely optimize or prematurely like sort of commit to, oh, well, like I spent some time like building out a card pack in this certain way and now like I feel like I can't you know discard it or whatever but like I feel like from a developer perspective you know I work with a lot of front-end teams and, and I'll say that a lot of these things are foreign concepts to developers who are used to only having one shot at doing this right and like you know in order to build the header, I'm thinking about every, you know, permeation of it and different sort of considerations and, oh, sweating over the semantics of it all. And what I try to help coach teams do is to sort of get to your point, this very fluid, you're just sort of like putting these things down and throwing some stuff together. If I were to ask any developer, you know, any front end person, it's like, hey, mark up a header. They would be able to do that. You don't need to know what color blue it is going to be or like what the specific layout is like you could get to work on at least the structural aspects of that and I'd say that like even if the design wildly changes and sort of mutates over time true you're going to have some patterns that end up in the trash can and that's a natural part of the creative process but there's also a lot of structural work that can be done independent of any design work that comes down the pipe. So I sort of call this front-end prep chef work for designers, uh, for front-end designers. And what I mean by that is like in the restaurant world, you know, you have prep chefs that will come in and do a lot of preparatory work, right? So chopping carrots and chopping, you know, a bunch of vegetables and making salads and marinating meats and stuff like that. And they do that so that the next day, whenever everybody is is in the kitchen together, they could focus their time actually sort of building meals together rather than it's like, oh, we have somebody ordered something with carrots. Looks like I have to go away and do all this chopping. And what front end developers, by doing this sort of prep work of like at least putting in those sort of structural things, getting things sort of wired up and building a few components like in the abstract, right? You're not committing to anything so much as you are just sort of like stubbing things out. That gives you as a developer more of an opportunity to collaborate with the design team to arrive at solutions that, again, look aesthetically pleasing, that fit the you know UX best practices, but are also technically feasible. So in my own workflow, I'm fortunate to work with people like Dan Mall. So Dan will be sort of working in static tools, sort of designing what a header might look like and, you know, applying color, typography, and texture. And I'll sort of be beside him 
figuratively speaking, where we work uh, remotely, but I'll sort of have like a in-browser version of that header that's demonstrating things like responsive design that's demonstrating the interactivity that's demonstrating like the sort of performance and animation and true type rendering and true color rendering and like that might begin its life and quite literally we'll do these like sort of grayscale versions of those components to get the point across to the client that it's like yeah this is not fully baked but like we're able to sort of show both of these artifacts, like the sort of working prototype, whether that's like a code pen or inside a pattern lab. And then we're able to show like a sketch document and we're able to sort of tell a more complete story to the client where it's not just like, oh, hey, like look at this picture of a website and give me the sign of approval. We're able to sort of simultaneously say, here's a direction we feel like could be helpful from a visual design perspective and UX perspective. And then here's how we're sort of seeing that play out, like really working inside the browser. So in those early days of the project, like, again, to to just like, I think underscore this, it's natural to like, you don't want to do a bunch of work that's going to end up on the cutting room floor, right? But I feel like as front end people, that's a foreign concept to us. I think at least like on the design of the equation, people are used to doing, oh, like, let me make you know, version one, version two, version three, or or like direction one, direction two, or direction three, and like knowing full well that they're going to throw two of those out. So like, I feel like that's more sort of baked into design mentality. But from a development mentality, we feel like we have like this one shot at getting it right and stuff. And that can lead to paralysis. So what I try to do is like help people just get more comfortable going, yeah, like, let's mark up this header, even though we might not need a search form in there later. But that's okay. Just like include it right now like it's really easy and cheap and we have things like git you know like it's this notion of like ah we need to spell it all out and get it perfect before we do any sort of coding i think is not helpful and that's a really interesting point you made up about designers being more okay with you know throwing a version away or something i think that's spot on i definitely have that feeling you know that if i write something up if i'm coding something and i have to throw it away or have to get rid of it i'm like ah man you know there's a bit of like a (laughs) (laughs) Almost a feeling of a bit of a kind of failure in there. You know, we do like refactoring things, (laughs) Yeah. but it's like, if we have to throw something away, it's like, oh man. (laughs) Yeah. I think though too, that like, you know, the power of component driven design and development is just like, you might be throwing that away now, but like maybe you just sort of set it off to the side and like later on down the road, by the time you get to that second or fourth or fifth screen, maybe there's actually a better use case for that thing. So it's like, you don't have to like throw it away and it's gone lost in the sands of time. It's like, no, like maybe it just didn't end up being the right solution for this particular context, but in another context, it actually is. So that's why back to your earlier question of like, when do I like start thinking about atomic design? It's like by thinking about that, like right at the beginning, even in those sort of primordial stages, you're able to set things aside for future reuse. So it's like, oh, turns out we're not going to go with this crazy little component that I spent a couple hours on or something. But, you know, maybe down the line, there is that right use case for it. Yeah. And I'm thinking like, again, like going back to my, David, our previous work at SimilarWeb, which is like a SaaS company, designers were basically taking apart anything that has to do with coding environment. There was like this separation. So we had to work with static tools. I guess in some organizations, maybe it's more connected. But I think also in like bigger companies in the Bay Area, it's the same, you know, like designers have their kind of like work areas, like static tools, like Sketch or Photoshop or Figma 
whatever and like the developers have their own like development environment and the access to it and those are working together so the thing that I'm struggling with right now that like I'm getting companies coming to me and telling me hey how about you come and give us a workshop about like design systems and about how we can like create a way of working together in components and everybody knows you know what everybody knows atomic design when they come to me they already know atomic design they know who Brad Frost is they read your stuff and they're like but we can't just get it to work we can like so there's the point where they start talking like the atomic design terminology with their bosses and those can't understand so they bypass that gave it out of names that was cool then they tried it but then it got somehow stopped along the way and now they're stuck in this like kind of static style guide in sketch and it can't get into the front-end development part of it because there's this like barrier of like front-end development environment and bureaucracy of like SaaS companies I guess so I guess you're probably you know kind of like faced with those kind of stuff uh, struggles as well I don't know what do you advise people like that like companies that have that problem yeah <laughs> Yeah, that's a great question. And I think you sort of pointing out that there is this sort of clear separation between design and development is, I think, the core of the problem. And, you know, the name design system is a little misleading as it sort of implies that, you know, oh, this is just a design thing. Oh, like this isn't necessarily something that like front end people and certainly not back end people or QA people or whatever need to concern themselves with. 100% false as it turns <laughs> out like that's that's not right so like you know a successful design system is born to serve the needs of the organization and that involves everyone involved in the success of building good products for their companies and so you see this a lot whenever it's like the design team tries on their end to sort of wrangle things and so they might have a sketch UI toolkit or whatever and then that might help them like work better together and that's great and then you have front end people that are sort of on their side of the pool trying to figure this out and standing up some pattern library or something like that but it really is that sort of cultural and organizational and process barrier of like we work here and we work here and you know never the two shall meet so a lot of what i do in my work is sort of break that stuff down which is hard. I mean, it's, uh, you know, quite literally, you know, we've worked with companies where it's like, cool, you all sit together now. <laughs> and they're like, what? And then, you know, after a week or two of working that way, you know, they're looking over each other's shoulders or like, you know, sort of glancing at the person sitting next to them screen. And it's like, oh, like, that's cool. Like, maybe I could do something with that. And it's like that level of sort of organizational sort of stuff. And it's, by the way, it's not limited to software as a service companies. It's not limited to whatever. I could, I promise you, I can go to the Bay Area and find plenty of those places where it's like, oh yeah, design's on this floor and, and engineering's on this floor or in this other building or, yeah. or oh well. <laughs> They're actually in, in Romania or whatever. So it's like, that's not just one kind of, of company or another. It, that's everywhere. So yeah, so really, when it comes to design systems, it's like you're really trying to create a deliberate effort to sort of bridge those worlds together. And a lot of, you know, sort of how we go about doing that is figuring out you know, sort of what the pain of their existing workflows are, what the pain of handoffs and deliverables and approvals and all that stuff is, and mm -hmm. then sort of designing solutions to prevent that stuff from happening or help solve that. And so, so design system is like a very tangible vehicle for trying to make 
sort of codify those best practices or those like more aspirational practices. It's like, we want to be more collaborative. We want designers and developers to be speaking the same language. And so therefore, if we could sort of create a place where if you're talking about tabs, like here's a place where the designers are coming to talk about tabs and to learn about tabs. And the designers are also coming to that same place to talk about tabs and learn about tabs. And so we're all like looking at the same thing. And that helps, you know, if they're geographically sort of, you know, not necessarily in the same Slack rooms or whatever, you know, so, so these design systems and style guides are meant to serve as this glue. The style guide or the design system as a tool is not by itself going to solve those problems. You have to actually execute from like a process standpoint, sort of make the system fit your workflow and and make that system encourage that cross-disciplinary collaboration. So there's not a solve, like there's not a, there's not like a panacea that you're going to sort of put in place and it's like wave a magic wand and like put the style guide together and then suddenly everybody's going to be, you know, all smiles. It's a lot of hard work to sort of overcome those sort of entrenched processes, entrenched bureaucracy, entrenched stakeholders, mentalities and stuff like that. It, It gets very political and very human very quickly. And that's, I find as an evolution of my own sort of career, I've, I found it very rewarding to sort of, yeah, it's like making good front end code is cool, I guess, but like, okay, you sort of sort these things out and it's like, all right, that's great. The real fun problems I think are the ones that are more human based, where it's just like, okay, like how do we get these people talking to each other? How do we, how do we get these people like comfortable sort of prototyping in the browser earlier? How do we get these people comfortable, like sitting side by side and truly collaborating, not just like talking at each other or whatever, but like actually working on the same stuff together and like designing a a solution for something together. Those things I find to be tremendously fun problems to tackle. Yeah, and I think the necessary problems that you have to tackle in every organization, if you want to create this kind of collaboration and actually have a design system in that organization, right? I mean, it's necessary. You can't avoid it. Yeah, I would say, let me think about this. It's like, I, I do think that you can just pursue making things more collaborative without like a formal design system in place. I think that that's been happening for a long time. But now design systems sort of help accelerate that and sort of give some structure to a lot of those initiatives. Yeah. So yeah, sort of like working definition design system is like, a you know, it's one of those terms where you ask 15 people what that means and you're going to get 15 different answers but generally speaking like the sort of working definition that i go off of is like a design system is the story of how you do design and development work at your organization you know so it's putting it through the lens of an of a new hire is a great example or a great sort of like just thought experiment where it's like new person starts working for your company and they go great What should I be thinking about as I design and build products for you? And you should be able to answer that in the form of a URL, right? To the style guide where it's like, you know, here's what we care about. Here's our principles. Here's like, you know, our tools, like our sketch, like UI library, or like, here's like our code snippets. Here's our code repositories. Here's UX guidelines around certain components and stuff like that. So the design system is the ingredients of what goes into design and development. And then the sort of style guide is the happy home for all of that stuff. And so that sort of helps elevate all of that friction between disciplines or elevate all that stuff and sort of gets to a more of a 
you know, this isn't my opinion on like how this thing should be done or, or your opinion. It's like we have to sort that stuff out. And then once we have that stuff sorted out, we codify that in the system. So we say, all right, like we went down this road and failed miserably or like we had like this thing designed a certain way and it didn't convert as much. And once we switched to sort of using this pattern rather than this pattern, for instance, like we found these big gains. And so it's like you bake those insights into your actual system so that the next time somebody reaches for that solution, they have an understanding of like, yeah, this is this is why things are the way they are. Yeah. All right. Yeah, great points. We can dig and dive deep into these topics, but we're already over time. So um, I think it's time for the lightning round. What do you say? That sounds scary, <laughs> but let's I do know, it. Listeners can't see, but Brad just has a look of fear on his face right now. He's actually trembling. In his seat. <laughs> it's finally a sunny day here. I don't want more lightning. Yesterday was, I had a lot of lightning yesterday. But yeah, let's do it. So we want to ask you just a few quick questions. Give first answer that comes to your mind, and we'll go on to the next one. Got it. All right. Your most important tip for designers starting out? Work hard, don't be an asshole, and share what you know. What would you say to freelancers, someone who wants to be a freelancer now? I would say do good work. Again, put yourself out there, share share the things that you've been you know, working on, make good connections, and try to step out into something rather than nothing. It's a little easier than sort of like plunging yourself into an abyss. <laughs> what things do you find from your background that specifically help you out today in your day-to-day work? I'd say... <laughs> My background as a musician, I think, really helps me frame a lot of this stuff. So music is both sort of an art and a discipline. You know, you have sort of a freeform creative part of music, but then it's also made up of notes and notation and there's sort of rules and music theory like parallel fifths and whatever and you know web design is is very very similar in that respect where it's you know you have this creative vehicle this thing where you know you could pick whatever colors you want you could pick whatever type you want but at the underpinning all of that is ones and zeros you know is logic if else statements and so on and so i'd say that that sort of parallel between music and web design is very much guides like how i think about all this awesome cool so now like can you name one podcast blog or book that you recommend to our listeners hmm total self-promotion here but uh anna debenham uh and myself we run uh, a podcast called the style guides podcast where we interview people who have sort of successfully implemented design systems at their organization we talked about sort of what all goes into making those things successful awesome a non-self-promotional one i'll say that i really enjoy chris coyer and dave rupert's shop talk show yeah me too cool and do you have a favorite tool app software or anything digital that you use regularly and you think none of people in the industry know about? <laughs> again, I'm sort of light on my tools. I sort of talked about Pattern Lab earlier. And yes. again, at the risk of sounding self-promotional again, I, it's a tool that is sort of the cornerstone of how I do all my work. And I really enjoy working with that. Whether people want to adopt it or not is another thing, but definitely check out if you're interested in that whole sort of like pattern driven design and development thing. If you go to styleguides.io and check out the tools, we've sort of rounded up a bunch of tools around doing this stuff. And that touches things like Angular, that touches things like React, that touches things like, oh, like, you know, this pattern library software and that style guide software and stuff like that. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. And uh, last one. 
where can we connect with you online? So I'm bradfrost.com and that's where I sort of blog and stuff and hopefully we'll be seeing a new design. Uh, yeah, soon. we're looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, as soon as I get back to work here on it. Um, cool. And then I'm uh, brad underscore frost on Twitter and most other places. <laughs> awesome. Cool. So Brad, I think like by the time that this episode will be live, you'll have your website up. Or at least, uh, I, think, I think you hope I'm for that. I'm not making any promises. Yeah, I hope. I hope. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was awesome having you in the show, man. Like so much insights and good tips. Really fascinating the way that you work and you, and you see things as a designer and a front-end developer. So thank you so much. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Thanks lot, for bro. having me. I appreciate it. All right. <laughs> Thanks a bye lot. Bye. Bye, man. All right, everyone. And that's a wrap. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please consider sharing it with a colleague or a friend that you think would benefit from listening to it. And if we may ask, one more thing, please rate us on iTunes. This will help the podcast reach more audience and make us so happy. You only have to do this once, not every episode, and it has tremendous impact. Thanks a lot, hackers, and we'll see you on the next episode. What's up? So if you enjoyed this episode, I'm very happy and you're welcome to listen to the rest of the episodes of the Hacking UI podcast. I just want to let you know that this is a legacy podcast, meaning David and I are no longer creating new episodes for this specific podcast. David and I are working on different businesses now. So just wanted to let you know that, first of all, if you want to catch David, you can check out Thought Leaders. And that's what he's working on, thoughtleaders.io. And if you want to check out what I'm working on, I have a new podcast. It's called Creativepreneur, the Creativepreneur Show with Sagi Schreiber. And you would be able to find that on iTunes and any podcast app. And I would invite you to come and listen. And that's where I interview people that have built a lifestyle business out of their skills and passions. It's amazing. I interview so many different people that have amazing stories and will help you with your business, will help you with your skills, taking your skills to the next level and achieving higher goals. So if you're interested in that, I'm there, The Creativepreneur Show, and you can check it out also on YouTube. And you can also just go to creativepreneurmagazine.com 
or creativepreneur.show. I hope to see you around.